This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, incorporating the Catholic faith into everything they do. To see if Seton is right for your family, go to seatonhome.org. Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. Each week, I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder sporting a newly minted mustache and coming straight from his car, Ed Condon. This is... Ed, you've got a mustache. (laughs) It is a mustache, yes. I can't deny that. It would be foolish of me to try. Um, But, you know, I'm, I'm up at the lake. Uh, I'm as soon as we finish this podcast, I am on vacation and I like, I'm a man of my people and I, I am among my people and I want them to recognize me as of them. And you know what? It's working. Um, I did this as a joke the night we arrived, but I just kind of thought I'd take it out for a spin. And the number of people who now sort of nod deferentially to me when I walk into stores and things or address me as sir, I, it's kind of addictive. I'm not going to lie. You know, even with you're wearing a hat that says Wieners, even with a hat that says Wieners, uh, Chicago Wieners, yeah. Oh, is that a baseball team? It's a team? minor league team. Yeah, they're they're otherwise known as the Chicago Dogs, and uh, they play they play out near O'Hare. Oh, okay, great. But no, I'm um, I you know, I I couldn't get away with this in D.C., but but up here, it's uh, it works for you. It it's working for me. I mean, my wife tried to get me to shave it off, um. And she said the problem with it was it made me look like a pirate, and that 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 was the wrong <laughs> that was the wrong tack to take. Yeah. I just... Well, listen, we're going to talk more about your mustache later. Uh, we we are going to talk more about your mustache later. We're going um, towards the end of the show, but for now, this is not um, you know sometimes an episode that we make of the Pillar Podcast. Probably our best episodes are planned episodes where we sort of map meticulously what we're going to talk about. This is not a planned episode. This is rather a reaction episode. And by that, what I mean is that um, we're recording this podcast on Friday, about midday for me, a little bit into the afternoon for you. And we have just finished watching the funeral of Bishop Howard Hubbard, the um, the late emeritus bishop of Albany, New York. Bishop Hubbard died um, uh, in scandal, um, well, amid scandal, I suppose one could say, um, on Saturday and was um, uh, had a massive Christian burial today and I presume will be buried subsequently. Um, and uh, we have uh, we have a lot to say about that, don't we? So this is kind of a reacts episode to something I think which is a significant, I think a, a situation of significance in the life of the church right now. Um, and uh, we, we want to talk about it. We want to talk about the death of Bishop Hubbard. We want to talk about who Bishop Hubbard was, his death, its significance, the significance of his funeral, and even the sort of ecclesial cultural uh, significance of his funeral. I don't want to, Ed, be like the two guys. I don't want to be armchair quarterbacking a homily or the musical choices or the um, albs. Did you see those albs with the hoods that those sort of adult altar servers were wearing off to the right of the... Uh, um, I did, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not my intention to just sort of cast shade on liturgical choices that weren't the liturgical choices that I would make. I mean, that's kind of um, a feat, to be very honest. But I do think that... Um, we should talk about the significance of Bishop Hubbard's funeral and and the reason why it matters. Um, and so that's what we're going to be spending at least some of our time talking about today. Um, okay. Okay. So Ed, why don't like, we had a conversation last week on this show, which did not make it to air because we had a technical problem, but we had a conversation on this show about um, Hubbard, who, who Hubbard was and what he sort of represented in the life of the church. And uh, I think that would probably be a good place to start. Why don't you just sort of contextualize Bishop Howard Hubbard, who died who died on Saturday. Okay, I, I think there would be um, there there are probably two 
headings under which you could consider Bishop Howard Hubbard. Uh, the first is you could consider the sort of um, ministry of him as a bishop in the church. Uh, and I think it would be fair to put him in the sort of Weakland Hunthausen mold. Do you think that's fair? He was. I do. Um, he was a, a longtime f- bishop of Albany, New York. He was bishop of Albany, New York from, I want to say, 1977 to 2014, an extremely long tenure, over five papacies, but with, for himself, one ecclesiological vision, I think, for the whole of that time. Would you agree? I would agree. And it was an ecclesiological vision that was at odds with the teaching of the church in many points. He was um, an unapologetic proponent of the sacramental ordination of women. Um, he he had uh, a rather looser take on sexual morality and um, the nature of human sexual relationships than I think the church or the catechism admits to. Uh, he was an infrequent critic of popes with whom he disagreed on things. He he was fairly outspoken in all of those ways, and so I think that's one heading under which you can consider Howard Hubbard. Um, then you might say there was the there was the other Howard Hubbard, the somewhat scandalous Howard Hubbard, um, at the time of the sort of you know um, the Episcopal chapter of the of the American Church's sexual abuse crisis. It emerged, and he admitted to publicly moving. What he this was knew in a deposition, be. I think, last year he made this admonition, to perhaps two years ago. Yeah. Um, he admitted to having knowingly moved serial sexual abusers of minors from assignment to assignment um, with the express intention of preventing their actions from coming to light or for them facing justice and for the avoidance of scandal. Uh, he himself was accused during his retirement of historical acts of sexual abuse of minors. Um, and he was actually accused, I think, during his tenure as well. So I think he was accused during his tenure of several acts of um, abuse of minors, and he engaged with a retired U.S. attorney to do a kind of investigation, and she said there wasn't substanti- substantiated evidence to suggest that he had committed acts of uh, sexual abuse against minors, but in his retirement, so that was three, but then in his retirement, according to the New York Times, at least, he's been accused in the aggregate altogether now of, of, of having abused as many as 10 minors. Many that's of, right. Many and of those allegations the... Which arose the all of that sort of came to light by the passage of the New York look back window in the statute of limitations for filing lawsuits. So those all came came out. Um, and then, of course, his most famous, I suppose, uh, recent act was uh, last year in November. He uh, he announced that he was seeking laicization from the Holy See. He, he said at the time publicly that he was seeking laicization because he had been placed under restricted ministry in his retirement by the current Bishop of Albany, Bishop Edward Scharfenberger, the Diocese of Albany issued a statement saying, that's not true. We've done no such thing. There aren't any restrictions, which is kind of a, which is, <laughs> I don't know, that's the thing that I would. Right. No, yeah. no, this guy. We would who, not place this accused this sexual abuse of minors under restrictions. Abuse. Why yeah, would we do that? This guy who's accused of sexual abuse of minors. No, we didn't put any restrictions on him. We don't know where he got that idea. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. quite. Something was not right there. I mean, there was clearly a disconnect between what he thought and what they thought, but uh, something was. Uh, uh, but something it was, was not anyway, quite that the was his, that you would have expected. Yes, the the real or imagined restrictions on his ministry and retirement were the putative reason he gave for seeking laicization. Although we reported at the time that actually it was because he wished to, he wished to contract marriage with a woman, mm-hmm. and uh, we reported that we reported the woman uh, was several decades his junior, and that this is the real reason why he. He was trying to seek laicization. Uh, he then, in at the end of last month, at the end of July, uh, he attempted to contract 
civil marriage with said woman and publicly announced it a few weeks later. And he said, I have sought legislation. He wrote a letter to the Albany Times Union, I think. Uh, yes. That was kind of laying this out, right? Yeah. And he said, I, I asked for laicization. It was denied me. Uh, the, the reason, so far as we're able to ascertain, is the Holy See said, we are not going to dispense you from the obligations of the clerical state while there are still lawsuits against your Episcopal ministry outstanding. So could you please hold your horses until such time as those cases have concluded? And he said, no, I'm not prepared to wait. So he attempted to contract civil marriage uh, and um, incurred, so far as we can be aware, uh, canonical penalties for that, but we we can't be sure because nothing has been formally declared all that about that. Although the but the bishop, what would, Albany, be this, what would be the ecclesiastical penalty for a cleric who attempts marriage? Well, he would be impeded from any kind of ministry. Um, he would be irregular for the exercise of orders. That's right. Um, Which is effectively to say that he would be unable to exercise any priestly ministry. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he would not be able to present himself. He declares a latis intensius suspension. Indeed. Um, and so the Diocese of Albany responded to to that statement saying they were just learning about this and they were shocked, shocked to discover that Bishop Hubbard had attempted to contract marriage and made this public statement. And that was just kind of how things rolled for a couple of weeks. And um, and then he had a stroke. The Diocese of Albany announced that he had had a stroke. He was um, in the sort of last days or hours of his life that he had received the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. And he died, I think, 36 hours thereafter, more or less. Mm -hmm. Is that about right? And today he was given an ecclesiastical funeral presided over by uh, Bishop Scharfenberger of Albany. And I think I saw two other bishops in attendance. I, I didn't quite get an idea on them. but Yeah, it looked to me like it was two other bishops in attendance. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, he was buried as a, as a bishop. You know, the appropriate decorations on the coffin were Well, were and placed. he was buried as a bishop. Um, with a with a homily which sort of emphasized his Episcopal identity and um, in light of, I think, Bishop Scharfenberger, the current Bishop of Albany's um, statement at the time when, when Bishop Hubbard announced his civil marriage, which in which he said, no, listen, Bishop Scharfenberger said, look, Hubbard has not been laicized. Hubbard cannot contract marriage validly. Hubbard remains a cleric and the emeritus Bishop of Albany. So Scharfenberger's response when um, when Hubbard attempted marriage was to say, no, 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 he didn't you know, get married, despite what you may read virtually everywhere. He didn't actually get married because he's not able to validly contract marriage because he's a cleric and bound by the obligations of the clerical state. So, I mean, in a certain he's way, also that element, bound, therefore, by all of the penalties yeah, incurred upon him by his that actions, element of his. We didn't um, talk about that. We didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about that, but we're about to. Um, but that element of his funeral, namely that he had a funeral appropriate, you know, for a bit, the funeral liturgy of a bishop is, I think, consistent with what Scharfenberger has been insisting um, all along uh, about Hubbard, which is Hubbard is a cleric, this marriage was not valid. But, I, wait, I was going to say, uh, you mentioned that this is consistent with his status as a bishop, but J.D., is there nothing in the law about um, yeah. who can receive a, a So we So we have been watching, and you and I have been watching kind of what's unfolding in the Diocese of Albany very carefully over the past week. And may I say that we are praying for the soul of Bishop Hubbard, and you should probably do so as well, and to pray for those who are harmed by his actions as bishop, or his actions, his ultra-various actions, which were not the actions of a bishop at all. Um, at the time the diocese announced last week that Bishop Hubbard was hospitalized, and the reason was that he had had a stroke, um, there was also an announcement which struck both of us as surprising, namely an announcement that Bishop Hubbard had received the anointing of the sick. We were surprised by that because the church's disciplinary law says that a person who is um, 
obstinately persevering and manifest grave sin, living in obstinate and manifest grave sin, is not to receive anointing of the sick without prior repentance. And so um, what we found ourselves wondering is if the diocesan announcement that Bishop Hubbard had received the anointing of the sick was a symbol that he had repented of this manifest grave sin of, of invalidly attempting marriage despite his clerical state, which the Bishop of Albany himself had called out just weeks prior, if he had repented of that and sort of rectified his situation, or if the alternative was that um, the diocese had simply moved forward with anointing without any sort of clarification about that whatsoever. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that's a private matter. His repentance is a private matter. His, his confession is a private matter. And indeed, his confession is a private matter. But his um, sin, his external separation from the church, um, his external departure from the discipline of the church by virtue of his attempted civil marriage, his repudiation of the authority of the Holy See, and his, his ipso jure suspension from the his clerical ipso state, ipso suspension from the clerical state, um, all of that is public, and indeed so public that his own bishop, Bishop Scharfenberger, had called attention to it and sought to clarify that those actions, that his his attempted marriage was um, was invalid. So, because all of that was indeed public, and his bishop had said this is a reason for scandal in the same way that bishops have said about Pelosi or Biden or these kinds of things with regard to Eucharistic coherence, it was surprising to us that the diocese would then subsequently say he received anointing of the sick without clarifying what had changed about this public state. Now, it might have been Bishop Hubbard requested the anointing of the sick, which would have indicated um, some contrition, or Bishop Hubbard expressed a desire to return to the discipline of the church, you know, prior to or subsequent to confession, something, but some resolution of basically his own bishops calling out that he had separated himself from the discipline of the church and, uh, and, and repudiated the doctrine of the church. Apart from that, we were sort of confused by the announcement that he had received the anointing of the sick. We, we wrote to the diocese and we asked them, hey, this is great. Does that mean that Bishop Hubbard has, you know, um, renounced this, uh, this civil union, which the bishop, which Bishop Scharfenberger had said inva was invalid or had otherwise kind of rectified his status as a cleric or, you know, something else. And the diocese wrote back and said, well, this is, that's a private matter. And the, you know, there, there are nuances to pastoral care in the church and the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. That didn't tell us, um, anything, anything did it. <laughs> that didn't no. tell us anything. No, it was scarcely worth the ink expended to print the statement out. And again, you might be saying, guys, this is his private business. I think that's a kind of common perception. But the law of the church sort of says otherwise, doesn't it, Ed? Well, the law of the church says otherwise. And also, Bishop Hubbard said otherwise when he chose to make all of this public by himself, independently going to the local newspaper and saying, I have some things I would like to say. Right. I have some things I would like people to know. I would like the faithful of the Diocese of Albany and the Catholic Church more widely to understand. That I have to rejected know, the disciplinary authority of the church. Yes. That I have been in communication with the Holy See. They have not told me what I want to hear. They have not done what I wanted them to do. And so I'm giving them the bird. And I want you, faithful of the Diocese of Albany, to understand that I, your emeritus bishop, have done this. And I want you to take from it what lessons you will. And his own bishop said subsequently, hey, he did that invalidly. That wasn't really a contracting of marriage. He remains a cleric. His own bishop effectively publicly, you know, corrected to some extent. Now, he didn't declare the latest and sensitive suspension, but he he publicly corrected to some extent this issue. Um, what the law says about the anointing of the sick is this. The anointing of the sick 
is not to be conferred upon those who persevere obstinately and manifest grave sin. So what we had was an obstinate expression of manifest grave sin, affirmed by a bishop as an obstinate expression of manifest grave sin, and then the diocese saying he received the anointing of the sick, but no resolution of the question of whether or not he persevered. And the perseverance means, um, did he put aside this situation which put him at odds with the teachings of the, with the disciplinary authority of the church. In other words, did he, this manifested thing, this public thing called a civilly contracted marriage, holding himself out as married when he isn't, holding himself out as rejecting the authority of the church, um, did he um, bring that situation to an end? Not did he say, I want to continue in this and I want to be anointed, but did he bring that situation to an end? And that's what the perseverance question is asking. Is that right, Ed? That is correct. And indeed, his obstinance was affirmed by the fact that his own bishop warned him about this, right? I mean, his own bishop said publicly, uh-uh. Okay, so we asked the diocese, and the diocese said, the supreme law of the church is uh, the salvation of souls. And um, and we were vexed by that. Yes. I, I, I think we were frustrated on behalf of um, knowing the truth of the matter that has caused grave scandal to many because Catholics. Because why? Talk about that grave scandal. Why does this matter, Ed? Like, why are we not just being persnickety little persnickets right now? Well, it matters. Uh, I, I guess it matters for immediate reasons, and it matters for much grander reasons. The immediate reason is because Bishop Hubbard caused deliberately and knowingly grave scandal to the faithful of his former diocese and to the faithful of the Catholic Church. He publicly um, dishonored and refuted his own Episcopal consecration and ministry. Uh, this is all in addition, by the way, and sidecar to the accusations that he sexually abused minors and his own admission that he facilitated the sexual abuse of minors through knowingly moving predator priests throughout his time as bishop. It's not even touching that. This is just regarding his actions in the final six months or so of his life. He created all of this scandal and he did it knowingly and deliberately. And that scandal has gone unanswered. That scandal endures. And it's not possible to say, well, we're just going to pretend that that never happened. The church answers Howard Hubbard's actions whether it chooses to do so through silence, through actions, or through words. And what the church has answered the actions and scandal of Howard Hubbard effectively here is by saying, well, it doesn't matter. We're going to pretend it doesn't matter, or we're going to pretend it never happened. We're going to basically say, the last year of his life, eh, you know, we're, we're just not going to acknowledge that. And we're going to carry on and give him a full funeral. We're going to treat him with the respect to be accorded to a bishop who's died in good standing and communion with the church. And everyone can infer from that the lesson, which is either that Howard Hubbard must have, you know, some overwhelming merit of which the public is not privy to, or that hell is empty. And the teaching of the church and the discipline of the sacraments is, you know, just words on paper. And when the rubber meets the road, no one should be expected to have the rules applied to them or and I think this is actually the lesson that is to be taken away here, and it's far more sinister than that. You have been that. very, very clear about what you think the lesson is all along, and yes, this it's is real for me to borrow from the kids. And I hate to, for this show to be this, but for me, I think you're right, and this is a real. And I knew this in my heart of hearts, even when I was sort of incensed about it. I just didn't want to say it. But what you're going to say now is a real black pill for me, so to speak, as the kids would say. This is this makes this me. This is clericalism. This is clericalism. This is no, the bishops uh, okay, stick I didn't together. Think that's what you're going to say. I didn't think that's what you're going to say. I don't agree with you. I don't think it's clericalism. I think it's nicism. Gosh, I hate to say that because no, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. No, that's the same I thing, JD. Like, 
That's the same thing. This is this is bishops stick together. If Howard Hubbard had the same accusations made against him and performed the same actions as a priest, he'd have been buried in an unmarked grave on the roadside, See, and there wouldn't have been a Catholic I, I, priest within twenty miles. But, but if he's we a had bishop. Asked, why did so, he get the anointing? If we had asked why did he get the anointing of the sick, we would have gotten the same answer about like, well, you know, that's really not your business. Mm-hmm. And it isn't our business, JD, because we're not bishops and we're not clerics. And how dare you ask I, I impertinent questions about what one bishop may or may not do I, for another I bishop? Do think, I thought you were actually going to say something else. I do think it's a kind of, um, I do think it's a kind of laxity. Um, uh, no, I think it's positive clericalism. I, I absolutely do. And and here's a, here's just a little thought to chew on, JD. It is it is my dispassionate assessment, having reviewed all of the accusations I can find everywhere. Um, and all of the things that have been admitted to publicly everywhere. Uh, and I would say that the charge sheet against Howard Hubbard is significantly longer and significantly graver than that against Teddy McCarrick. I think whether that's one and whether the other. Theodore McCarrick is in odium and isolated and living in a basically a penal colony for predators. And when he dies, he will be afforded no honors. He has been reduced to the lay state um, and he has. You can form your own opinion on the justice of it, but he has been cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and grinding of teeth. Howard Hubbard suffered no such penalties, despite repeatedly and publicly setting out to provoke the Holy See and defy its authority. Yeah. I'm not defending Teddy McCarrick. I, by no means, I'm simply saying, consider the comparison of Theodore McCarrick and how he will die and how his funeral will be celebrated or not. And this is a man who all of the accusations against him taken resigned from the College of Cardinals, and submitted to the justice of the church. Howard Hubbard, on the other hand, defied the discipline and justice of the church up to and including the last weeks of his life. But all's forgiven, because he was one of the boys. See, I, I don't think that's it. I mean, I don't, I hear you and I hear your diagnosis, but I don't, I don't know that it's Episcopal wagon circling, or I don't know that it's only Episcopal wagon circling. I want to talk about that because I do think there's a kind of good... Let me tell you the philosophy well, well, that underpins how bishops retreat other bishops. Do unto others yeah, as but, you would have them do unto you. Fine. I, I do think that people would think, oh, this is a Bruto Figura if we didn't uh, if we didn't have the burial of the... If we didn't have a beautiful funeral of this bishop. And the funeral that he had was... It was not in the cathedral. It was not the Metropolitan. But it was not was not the penitential funeral that you might expect that that I think a reasonable person would would hope for for a person who is laboring under a vos hestis lex mundi investigation and numerous lawsuits regarding personal allegations of it, sexual It was abuse. explicitly termed by Bishop Scharfenberger as celebratory. Yes, it was. There's and much Bishop to celebrate in Bishop, Bishop Howard Hubbard's life and, and ministry. Scharfenberger's homily said yeah there were we have many memories of Hubbard and um uh, you know, spent a lot of time saying no priest is perfect, but priests offer the sanctifying mission of the church, which is true, but which seemed wholly inappropriate and to me insensitive to victims. <sighs> but I'm not sure I'm, I want to say, oh, this is just because bishops protect bishops. I think I think it's a broader um, ignorance of the reason for the church's sacramental discipline. And I think it's a broader sense. And I've sort of tried to keep like anticipating this even among the listeners of our show. I think it's a broader sense that the sacramental discipline of our church is in some way opposed to the church's mandate of mercy, like a perception that mer the merciful thing or the pastoral thing is the thing which entails giving people what they want. And the, um, 
the rigorous thing, the pharisaical thing, the unjust thing, or the the, the sort of um, uh, the the Javert thing uh, to, to 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 sort of coin phrase, the Javert thing is to apply the law rigorously in a way that would make people unhappy. I'm I'm not sure that's just about sort of bishops do unto bishops, although I think that exists in the church. I think instead there perdures this mentality in the church, which conflates accommodation with pastoral care and strictness or stricture with inflexibility, Phariseeism, and um, and cruelty. It is exactly this kind of behavior and mentality, the one that you're outlining, that Pope Francis actually condemned at the opening of the Synod on the Family, I believe it was, yeah. um, when he spoke of the, the disordered pastoral mentality that seeks to bind up the wounds of sin without first treating them. Right, that's right. And the problem often... Um, with that kind of mentality is, of course, it desires to be, um, it desires to be accommodating and kind and quote unquote pastoral to the person immediately in front of them, whether living or deceased. Well, of course, it would not be the Lord would not want us to deny a funeral, but it ignores those who are not in the room, who do not have a voice, and the the, the lesson which it may convey to them. So that Howard Hubbard has a funeral presided over by a bishop, at which his manifest sinfulness is alluded to but not addressed when he it's announced you know don't worry he had the comfort of the anointing of the sick without addressing whether or not he continued to obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin first i think it tells his alleged victims and those who are harmed by his administrative record in the life of the church and those who are harmed by his um abandonment of ministry and i think many clerics are harmed when a bishop is sort of abandoned his ministry to civilly married and nothing happens to him i think they're sort of left feeling again, like there's a sort of double standard. Um, it tells those people that their concerns are not as valid or not as important, that they just have to suck up their their um, desire to see justice enacted and to, and to see the, truth, the church proclaim the truth when the truth is manifestly evident, um, that the truth is sort of subordinated to this quote-unquote pastoral kindness, which is, I, I think, neither pastoral nor kind. So it, it, it puts first the needs of the, those in the room, sort of, so to speak, uh, ahead, or the the desires of those in the room ahead, um, and then more broadly in the church, I think it gives a kind of counter witness to the notion that we live what we believe. If we don't live according to our law, if we don't live, uh, if we don't, if we don't believe that the church's discipline is intended for our good and for our salvation, and that it's sort of the best thing possible to um, skirt around the law when it creates a sort of a hardship, well, then the credibility of our claim that the church's authority is indeed oriented towards our salvation is undermined because sure, sure, but maybe our salvation then is not nearly as important as just doing this nice thing, or maybe God doesn't really care about all these laws anyway, right? So it sort of undermines the credibility of the claim of the church's authority being oriented towards salvation. And then it is actually a betrayal of the person in the room to fail to treat them in accord with justice. And that failure to treat them in accord with justice is, you know, it does not honor their dignity as a human person and, and those kinds of things. To just sort of say, yeah, fine, 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 you're good, don't worry about all that stuff, is paternalism, right? It's paternalism to tell Biden, you're good, don't worry about all that stuff um, with regard to his position on um, legal protection for abortion. It's paternalism to tell Pence, you're fine, don't worry about all that stuff with regard to his position on the death penalty. It's paternalism to tell Flynn, well, it's you're also fine. bad to tell Pence that you're fine, don't worry about all that stuff on his, with regard to his defection from having, the Catholic yeah, faith. Yeah, abandon the Catholic faith. It's paternalism to tell Flynn, you're fine, don't worry about that, all that stuff without with, with regard to his own manifest grave sinfulness. And I 
Sorry, did you mean Bishop Harry Flynn or did you mean J.D. No, Flynn speaking to me now? Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. I was just checking. And I see and experience this in my own parenthood, right? Like I do. It is a disordered but real desire to sort of put my child's hap- you know, momentary happiness or comfort or feeling feeling loved above like the hard work of forming him um, as a disciple of Jesus Christ and a person with character. But um, but it doesn't give him anything in the long run to just be self to be indulgent towards him. Right, I would agree. And we're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to ask you a question that I think will help illuminate a point I've been trying to make. Great, we'll be right back. Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by our friends at Seton Home Study School, which incorporates the Catholic faith into everything they do. That indeed is one of their defining features. Seton Home Study School is an accredited school with more than 15,000 students, which aims to help parents be the primary educators of their children with all the resources they need at their fingertips, including curricula, accredited teachers, specialists to stand by, and with a fraction of the cost of, uh, of Catholic school tuition in most brick-and-mortar schools. That's absolutely right. And in addition to offering full school enrollment, they also sell all of their books and textbooks and course materials individually so parents can just buy something like an English book if they want that as a supplement to their children's other education or to improve their grammar skills. They offer um, also single course enrollments for those that only want to take a course and not the entire program. And even students enrolled in public schools can benefit in taking an extra religion course, like, for example, um, a theology class, like understanding the scriptures or the early church and the fathers. And you can even accompany your students and take the course yourself if you feel like you want a refresher. Seton Home Study School offers so many opportunities for you and for your family to uh, have a deeper education in the Catholic faith. And they want to tell you all about it. So you can sign up for something called the Beginner's Guide to Seton at setonhome.org, right? right there on the front page. And here's what you can do that would be super helpful to us. You can check off that you heard about that from um, me and Ed at uh, the Pillar Podcast. They also have on their website this eight-minute video that you can check out to really understand what Seton does and why it's cool and why it's important and all of that. But really, check out that Beginner's Guide to Seton and do us a favor and let them know, especially if you're like not a subscriber to P- the Pillar and you're like, you know, I really should be doing something to support those guys. The favor you could do for us is go to setonhome.org, Sign up for the Beginner's Guide to Seton and let them know that you heard about it from us at the Pillar Podcast, um, because our friends at Seton Home Study School are doing great things. We want you to know about them, and we want they to, them to know that you know, because we know, and now you know. That's right. So please, check them out. Have a look. Watch the eight-minute video. See if Seton is right for you and your family. Go to setonhome.org. The best of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Seton Home Study School. I'm just writing jingles. I'm just working on jingles for him. That's no extra charge, guys. That's how much we love you. The Catholic faith in all we do. Seton Home Study School. Seton Home Study School. What do you think? Uh, that That's good. I um, the, the problem with writing good jingles is you have to write bad jingles for them to be good. Like the, <laughs> yeah, the, like those. The most memorable jingles are the ones that the first and last time you hear them, you want to punch a window out. Right. But, like, and they we never don't leave want, you. We don't want to write that for Seton. But I There's do nothing think- worse for a company in my mind than a successful jingle because then I will positively – like I will – um, what's the, what's the car parts company? O'Reilly, O'Reilly auto parts. I hate their radio jingle. I, I have, I have bought auto parts before and been presented with O'Reilly as the cheapest, most available options. I'm not giving them a penny of my money because I hate their jingle. I think I wouldn't want to do that to Seton. I think on the East Coast a lot about um, Eastern Motors. Eastern Motors. Oh yeah. Where your job's your credit. Your credit. Yeah. And they have all the like football players and rappers. Eastern Motors, keeping people in poverty. Well, yeah, that is what Eastern Motors is doing. They're not a real advertiser, so we can say that. But I have an idea. I wonder if the Seton people would go for this because they're pretty consistent advertisers. I'm sure we have more ads booked with them. I wonder if they would go for us to have a jingle contest for them. Like if we 
if our listeners write Seton jingles, could we play those during the ad? So what we're going to do is we're going to have our managing editor, Michelle, reach out to Seton and ask them if they're cool with a, first of all, if they're cool with a jingle contest. Second of all, if they're cool with a jingle contest, then we'll have our listeners make a jingle and then we'll see if we can put it in the ad. And then we'll find out what the prize is. We'll see if Seton wants to offer a prize to the listeners who um, make the right jingle. I think, but I, like I think this. they'd go for it. I mean, especially now I that we're staying on cool the show, people. I think yeah. they'll go for it. They're absolutely cool people. I think yeah. So we will there. be, we will have more information for you about what I'm calling the Seton Home Study School Pillar Podcast Jingle Contest. Hopefully Which is now probably going to be the title of the episode. <laughs> Yet more bang for your advertising buck here at the Pillar Podcast. And I Podcast. Just want other potential advertisers to see. This is how far this we is what go, you get. Uh, this is yeah. our advertising. This is what you get if yeah. we really like you. And we're back, Ed, from our ad, from our short advertising break. Um, <laughs> I think we, yes. I think that I think we sell that advertising break as a minute in the middle or two minutes in the middle. But that was, I think, an extended an extended that play. Was more for, than that. Yeah. Well, there's going to be a jingle contest for it. You know exactly. Okay. All right, so, so getting back to Bishop Hubbard and what you diagnosed. Um, Give me another term for it if you prefer, but what you called the sort of the, the problem of niceness, the nicety problem. I do call it that, but I'm very worried because, you know, there's a guy, a crazy guy with a website who talks about the church and militantly often, and he's always deriding something which he calls the church of nice. And so I'm uh, so reticent to bring in this language of niceness because I, I don't want okay. to seem to be going the, down. You, anyway, the misplaced pastoral. Yeah, let's say misplaced pastoral solicitude. Disordered yes. pastoral solicitude. You offered a number of examples where other than Bishop Hubbard's treatment where you feel this is an action, and one of them you mentioned was uh, the, the subject of Joe Biden and Catholic politicians and things like that. But here's why I'm pretty confident saying Howard Hubbard is an example just of clericalism. Because where was Bishop Scharfenberger on the bishop's debate on Eucharistic coherence, J.D.? What side did he weigh in on? He weighed in on the side of coherence, which is oh. to say... He so what's the, the difference between there. lay people and Howard Hubbard? Mm. Well, I, it's not well, the fact that they if have you're a speaker of the House of Representatives, Representatives no communion for you. If you're a bishop, well, go ahead, marry that gal. Yeah, and so that's I'll bury you anyway. I Don't worry, Howie, I got you back. Bishop Scharfenberger was a Eucharistic coherence guy, so to speak. But this notion of funereal coherence, which is which is actually, I think, expressed more concretely in the law, right? Because the the, mm -hmm. the law on funerals, which we didn't read yet, but um, why don't you go ahead to? Um, I will go to the law. I happen to have it ready. What the law actually says with and regards where, where to those what? twelve to what? whom uh, this this is Canons eleven eighty three and following eleven. Remember uh, when I thought it was thirteen and then twelve? Sorry, guys, yeah. eleven eighty three and following. Those to whom, and this is interesting because the law actually There's has actually this a chapter. There's a chapter called "Those to Whom Ecclesiastical Funerals Must Be Denied." Like they're not kidding around. Yeah, this is this is those to whom ecclesiastical funerals must be granted or denied. Right. Like the law wants you to know. Saying, hey, we're going to have a whole chapter on this. There it's are not denials here. Canon that you can debate. What does Canon nine fifteen mean? Blah blah blah. We're giving you a whole chapter to tell you what to do here. Well, it's a very short chapter, but yeah, okay. but it's still they they felt it important enough to give it a chapter. It is a chapter. Okay, when it concerns funerals. Okay. Unless they gave some sign of repentance before death, the following must be deprived of ecclesiastical funerals. Notorious apostates, heretics, and schismatics, those who chose the cremation of their bodies for reasons contrary to the Christian faith, 
other manifest sinners who cannot be granted ecclesiastical funerals without public scandal of the faithful. Hmm. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Now, I want to say, because I think that unless they show some sign of repentance is really important, and it's not a high bar. It it's is not a high bar. low bar. I'm it sorry. It just requires some public manifestation. No, some kind of contrition. I think it requires some kind of contrition that's, that's not sacramental. Con- well, even requesting sacramental contrition might be enough. But I think it, what's incumbent on the diocese, which has said this person is obstinate, which has said effectively, you know, Ben Scharfenberger saying this marriage is not valid, saying effectively this person is obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin, I think it therefore becomes on the diocese to say, thanks be to God, this person was lost and now they're found. They express some kind of con- they express some form of repentance. Now again, okay, so that no, doesn't mean here's, violate a, here's, the seal. Here's another question: If you follow, and that was Canon eleven eighty four, paragraph one, we just read, and this is paragraph two. If any doubt occurs, the local ordinary, that is the diocesan bishop, is to be consulted, and his judgment must be followed. Now, I am open to the local ordinary exercising his due judgment under law. But we tried to consult him, J.D., on his thinking and his reasons on this one, and uh, answer came there none. Well, the answer came that, oh, well, no, we asked them specific funeral questions twice, and there was no answer to them. So no that answer is at true. all. Crickets. And again, I, th- I think Scharfenberger was very direct on, again, I think Scharfenberger was very direct on Eucharistic coherence and has not been direct on funereal con- coherence. I don't think he's unique in that. Oh, I think I he's think been very direct. Bishop, I think he's been direct that he's again it, and he's it, been direct with his actions. Well, he has not, he has not, he has not, yeah. Okay. But I think he's not alone. I think most bishops, even probably bishops listening, are probably thinking, oh, these guys are being too rigid. Are you really going to deny someone a funeral in this day and age? And I think no, that's the law of the church is. The law of the church is. But I think they're possibly right. Like, I think there are bishops who are thinking, guys, this is a dead letter. And why are you making such a big deal of it? And and the reason is because this law is oriented towards the salvation of souls. And what we have learned nigh on these past few years is that when ecclesiastical authorities begin picking which laws are for real and which laws are not practical or implementable or real or oriented towards salvation. Not really with the spirit of the times to be all disciplinary about this. We get big problems, right? I mean, you know who who took that approach to penal law in the church, JD? Bishop Howard Hubbard. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's true. That's that is true. <laughs> yeah, when we decide How'd to take it upon ourselves to decide which law to implement and which law not to implement, we get bad things. And in this case, it's a it's about the church's teaching witness. And again, I think if the diocese said, "Hey, we know what the law of the church is. It's the job of Bishop Scharfenberger to make an assessment of this," and this man who we said was persevering in manifest grave sin, has shown some sign of repentance. Thanks be to God, our brother was lost and now he's found. That would be powerful. It would be cool. It would be a great, be great sign of conversion. But instead, the approach is like, why are you asking these questions? And the, the, just, why the funeral was just questions? like, how dare you ask these questions? Well, I mean, it's at the icky. very least, what are you guys weird? Yeah. And I think there are probably even bishops who are listening who are like, guys, come on. You know, why are you going to be so hard on this? The reason is because I think this and the the homily of Bishop Hubbard and the fact that it was sort of regarded as a celebration and the fact that there was no mention made of his potential victims and those who were harmed by his uh, administrative negligence and all of that, the fact that he was under vos estes, which the Holy See has been reticent to acknowledge all of that, I think all of that is a good litmus test again for the question, has anything changed since 2018? 
And I think we have new policy. Sorry, I just want to correct one word you said. You said negligence. He wasn't negligent. He did it knowingly. He admitted he did it knowingly. Yeah, it wasn't negligence. I mean, it was malice. Sense, administrative, administrative misconduct. Malice is a disposition of the will. And he has said, the reason I moved those guys around is because I was... I thought I had a good reason. Now, his reason was bad. He said, I, I, I thought that it would denigrate the, I thought it would create scandal, ironically. I thought it would create scandal, and I thought it would denigrate the perception that people had of the priesthood. It was a circling the wagons thing, but he wasn't, but malice would be, I think, I reassigned those guys because I wanted to hurt people. And I don't think that was it. I think no, it was- No, malice is, I did, I saw what the law told me to do, and I did something else knowingly and with intent. All right. Okay. In that sense. So, I intentionally violated the law. That's malice. I, okay. Yes. I don't think it was malice in the sense of um, I had I had malice toward those who were harmed by it, but I do think it was malice to the law and towards justice. Fine. Good. Okay. So I think this whole thing is a good, again, a, a good time for self-examination, a good time for a litmus test change of has anything changed? We have new laws, Vosestis Lex Mundi, which someone says that Someone sent me a note on our website saying that I pronounced Lux, Lex. They said I consistently pronounced Lux and Lex the same, which I had no idea. But, you know, we have this procedural thing, Vosestis Lex Mundi. We have the third-party reporting line. But um, what we talked about in 2018, what the church's bishops talked about was uh, an end to clericalism, an end to sort of um, a sense that, you know, bishops are above the law or bishops are above sort of the ordinary assessment of the church's judgment and transparency in decision-making with regard to the church. And this thing in which uh, concerns are raised about Bishop Howard Hubbard, does, has there been transparency? No. Has a bishop gotten, you know, has a bishop been subject to the ordinary judgment of the law? No. If he no. has, and there's the stuff we don't know, again, see number one, there was no transparency, so we don't know that. So, you know, has the church were, showed attention to the scandal of the faithful in the face of the criminal actions of, of one clerics, of the pastors? Right. Yeah, and to the way in which they harm. No. So if this were taken in isolation as a litmus test, you could say mm -hmm. this does not suggest that our culture has changed, right? Mm. How, how far a wide angle lens do you want to take while asking this question? Because I'm not sure it gets any better. Well, I tell you, the bishop of, um, the, the, the retired bishop of Cheyenne, Bishop Hart, died this week. Did you know that? Ah, uh, yes, I did see that. The Diocese of Cheyenne, I, I would have read it in Starting 7, except Luke is, Luke is on vacation. It's driving me nuts. Yes, I can't wait for Luke to get back from vacation. <laughs> no, I need Starting 7. The, I loathe being a Catholic employer and having to, you know, observe the church's teaching on social justice and things, and, you know, know, allow people I want to take vacations. You're also a inconvenience to me. I'm not your employer. We're partners. But you say that you're going on vacation, and I already have an assignment that I want you to complete by Tuesday. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, I think it's important. And when I tell you about it, you're going to want to do it. Nope. Nope. I'm taking a week off. It's happening. <laughs> okay. But maybe you start that week off at the close of nope. business on Friday when people generally. Mm -mm. Nope. Nope. Mm -mm. Okay. Bishop Joseph Hart died on Wednesday. He was a Bishop of Cheyenne from 1978 to 2001. He was accused of sexual abuse. The Holy See determined, do you remember this case, Ed? The Holy See determined that there was not sufficient evidence to conclude that he had um, committed the acts of sexual abuse against which he was charged. Um, well, they cleared him. They they said five charges couldn't be, seven charges were, he was not guilty of seven charges and five charges could not be proven. 
But the congregation at the same time said that he had a flagrant lack of prudence as a priest and a bishop for being alone with minors in his private residence and on various trips, which could have been potential occasions endangering the obligation to observe continence and that that would give rise to a scandal among the faithful. So the Holy See said, look, these allegations are not, are, are you know, he's exonerated for these allegations. These allegations can't be proven, but um, there's a lot of smoke here. Um, and where there's smoke, there could certainly be the fire or the perception of fire. The Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, where he was a priest, settled a gigantic lawsuit against people who claimed that he was responsible for their abuse. So he had a set of allegations, uh, as did Bishop Hubbard. Bishop Hart died this week, and um, have you ever heard anything about his funeral? No. Neither have I. And I'm told that the reason for that is because the Diocese of Cheyenne is not intending a public funeral for him, that there may be some private ecclesiastical service for his immediate family, but that that but there won't be um, there won't be a, a bishop's funeral, a live streamed bishop's funeral celebrated, you know, with a uh, with the grandeur of, of of the funeral celebrated for Bishop Hubbard. So the reason I bring that up is because you know, as I said, if you take Hubbard in isolation and say has much changed, well, it doesn't check check those boxes. Zoom out a little bit, and you could say, okay, there are places where you can see that something is different, and places where you can see that things are the same. And then the question becomes, which one will become the standard? Will Hart become the standard or Hubbard? And that's the part that I feel like we just, you know, we're still in a stasis now where you're May almost wrong if you criticize the Hubbard affair. Yeah. So Bishop Hart, as I understood, wasn't found guilty of sexual abuse any of the crime, yeah. sexually abusing minors, um, but he was just found guilty of grave imprudence. Having so, minors in, in his rectory and yeah. other stuff that's... Well, yeah, yeah. But was Bishop Hubbard found or known? By his own admission to have done things that were manifestly against the law and grave crimes? Yeah, sure. I'm not like, saying they're exactly the same. I'm saying here are two guys. No, but I'm saying you're you're saying look at the wider context and there are things where there are places where it's been. But what I see is a case is the worst is happening in Hubbard's case. That yeah, there are other places where a bishop who there was a lot of smoke, but no fire was discovered. They're doing the right thing with him. But the guy who not only was there smoke and fire, but the guy lit himself on fire repeatedly in the local newspaper. And it's like, well, yeah, but still, it's Howie. Right. Come I'm on, not saying it's that, Howie. I'm not saying it's right that it's Howie. I'm saying the Howie taken in isolation is No, I'm saying the context you're giving, which I understand why you're giving it, and I under, and I take your point, but I'm saying at the same time, it actually makes the situation of Howard Hubbard look worse. It does make the situation of Howard Hubbard look worse, but it also, but, I, but the point I'm trying to make is the situation of Howard Hubbard is not singularly sufficient to sort of assess the the state of of ecclesiastical culture on this issue because cultural change always has evidence of advancement and resistance or advancement and failure to implement at the same time and so at the same time that we see the Hubbard thing which is in which the diocese has not acted transparently in which the diocese has not been clear about their decisions in which the diocese has seemed not to have any desire to respond at all we can also say okay but in Cheyenne there's evidence of things being done differently and so that is um, that is evidence of, um, you know, at the very least, um, a march in the in the right direction in some in some situations, right? And that could, yeah. and and so the question is, which one of those things will become uh, normalized? Will Hubbard be the order of the day, and other Hubbards also get funerals, or will people say, oh, you know, with Hart they didn't do a funeral and nothing bad happened, and so we can. Uh, and, you know, and people weren't scandalized. And so we can um, take that up too. Now, when Weakland died last year, 
Weakland got Weakland who who admitted to having had an affair, which the man with whom he admitted to having an affair said that Weakland um, sexually assaulted him. But Weakland said, no, 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 it was consensual, and then paid the guy a bunch of money, which he first took from the diocese and subsequently paid back from the diocese. I mean, scandal after scandal with Weakland in terms of administration. Weakland, you know, admitted to. Um, Acting insufficiently with regard to clerics accused of of sexual abuse in his tenure as diocesan bishop, and then and then admitted to having had affairs. In fact, said that he had several affairs out of his loneliness during his time as a diocesan bishop. When Weakland had a funeral, he had a big pomp and circumstance funeral, and many victims groups were offended by that, and they spoke about that, and they said this is entirely inappropriate. We can't believe it that that the, there's there seems to be a sort of public canonization or a public mourning for a notorious figure, which again is what you get for Hubbard. Public mourning for a notorious figure. So you can see, look, there is this track. And at the same time, you could say, okay, but in Cheyenne, they're doing things differently. And so the next bishop who has to make a decision about this, when the disgraced Bishop Hepner of Crookston dies, or when Bishop Malone of New York dies, who, who resigned under pressure from the Vatican amid, uh, you know, uh, accusations of misconduct, when Malone dies or whomever, I think well, bishops will let's then go, have- let, Let's take the obvious um, and more McCarrick controversial dies. case. No, McCarrick, I think it's pretty clear what will happen to him. He's already been laicized. He's out. There's no pretending that guy's going to get a state funeral because he's already he's he's no longer an archbishop. He has been stripped of the clerical state. Therefore. What about Cardinal Mahoney? When Mahoney dies, right? Then bishops now have this two choice. Do I follow the path of least resistance and do it the Hubbard way, which I can just say this is the way we do things, and they did it for Weakland and they did it for Hubbard, so I have to do it. I have to grip my teeth and do it, blah, blah, blah. Will they do that? Or bishops at least now can say, well, you know, they didn't do anything for Hart and the cathedral walls didn't come crashing down around them. It wasn't it wasn't pro a problem that they didn't do anything for Hart. And victims groups seemed more, you know, seemed to appreciate the fact that they didn't sort of publicly celebrate a person who was notoriously. So bishops now well, again, have to this, my argument about clericalism, you say nothing bad happened when we didn't give a giant. Because I think bishops bishop are afraid Hart. not to do the, the thing that they're supposed to do for their predecessor, even if their predecessor was ignomi ignominy. But my point is, where's the if, if you're if you're afraid, like, well, I, I don't know, I wouldn't want to deny my predecessor who was notorious for his <laughs> you know grave offenses. I, I don't know if I don't give him a funeral, like who who do you think is going to complain? Because it isn't going to be the faithful of your diocese. It isn't yeah. going to be victims advocacy groups. It's just going to be your other bishops. So you go, why'd you do them like that, man? Yeah, and and it's not clericalism. Even, and it's you're right. You're right. You're right, Ed. Thank you. You're right. That kind of clericalism, which is not, which is not, we stick together because we think we're better. I, I just don't want to sort of make it seem like bishops are just out there saying all the time, who cares about those people? It's more like we do things the way this club does things, and we don't want to stand out. There's a mm -hmm. huge fear of standing out and doing things differently. Mm -hmm. And so now bishops have two paths. And when Mahoney dies or when Hebner dies or when Malone dies or any number of other people who have had to resign in disgrace or who, like Mahoney, seem to revel in their disgrace, um, bishops will now have two clear choices and they'll have a decision that they can make. You know, And that yep. that's how we'll know whether culture is changing. Yep. And again, please God, this won't be an issue because please God, Mahoney repents before his death. I mean... If we're praying for anything, it should not be that Mahoney is denied a funeral. It should be that Mahoney repents, right? That would be great. But the point, part of the point the church is making is the fact that some people are denied funerals is one of the things which helps to catalyze repentance. Yes. It serves the common good. Yes, that is how the salvation of souls is a supreme law. That's how it applies to something like this, to disciplinary norms, for something that is like a public ecclesiastical funeral. The guy who's dead and isn't getting the funeral doesn't benefit 
from the law there. It's all of the other people who can learn from his example right. and say, oh, the church is serious about this. Right. Maybe I better think good and hard about my life. Right. Okay. You have that handlebar mustache. <laughs> We're back to this. Yes, I do. Would you like to play a game? You don't have a mustache game. I have some mustache trivia for you. Yes. How did you? You didn't know I had a mustache. No, I didn't, but I'm a pretty good Googler. Wow. Okay. Sure. Yeah. All right. Okay. okay. So this is, so if I had had more time to prepare, I would have prepared. First of all, let's just say, let's pray for Bishop Hubbard's soul and let's pray for the conversion of other bishops. Now, back to mustache trivia. Okay. Um, if I had had time to prepare, I would have prepared somehow mustache, yes or no, or good, better, best mustache, but I can do mustache trivia more or less on the fly. Okay. Okay. Ed, number one, mustache trivia. I must ask you a question. <laughs> JD. <laughs> You've never heard that before? Shocking. On average, does the average mustache, the typical mustache, grow each day? 0.2 millimeters, 0.4 millimeters, 0.6 millimeters, or one millimeter? I'm going to go 0.6 millimeters. Ooh, I'm sorry, Ed. You overshot it. Perhaps your mustache is, is, uh, is, is healthier than others. But on average, the average mustache grows 0.4 millimeters per day. I may just be batting above average then. It, that is an... That is entirely I nourish my helpful. facial hair with tobacco and, and brown liquor. If anyone's, but according if anyone's wondering. to Dr. Alan Peterkin, um, a mustache consultant for Dove. No, there's yes, no such thing. There, there is. According to Dr. Alan Peterkin, a mustache consultant for Dove, um, Asian and Native American men have mustache hair that grows less quickly okay. than typical, and Mediterranean men have mustache hair that grows more quickly. Well, that's racist, but okay. I, <laughs> I think it's just studies, buddy. Uh-huh. Sure. Well, um, he and his Dove Consulting racial pseudoscience can, you know, that has nothing to do with my mustache. We don't recognize his Dr. Peterkin, Ed, is the author of a book called 1,000 Mustaches, A Cultural History of the Mo. I feel like this man should be in a watch list of some kind. I, that's not healthy. And he It's not has, healthy to take that kind of interest in other men's facial hair. He has um, undertaken a number of studies with regard to men and their facial hair habits. And so he knows approximately how many times the average man touches his mustache in a 24-hour period. Uh, now, you may be thinking to yourself, you're not supposed to touch your own mustache. But no, um, weird. Dr. Peterkin says that every man does, and, uh, and he's cataloged it. So does the average man touch his own mustache 200 times a day, 400 times a day? These are approximations. Approximately 200 times a day, approximately 400 times a day, approximately 800 times a day, or approximately 1,000 times per day. I, th th I don't recognize any of these figures as even remotely plausible. <laughs> Who's touching their – I mean, are these people all pathological liars? Who's touching their face that often? Uh, I don't We've know. been on camera for an hour. Have you seen me touch my face even once? Yeah, constantly. You're such a liar. <laughs> Dr. Peterson says the average – Mustache wearing man strokes or touches his mustache 760 times every 24 hours. That's revolting. <laughs> the world record holder for mustache length. Ah, now um, this is some good manly trivia. Has a mustache which has been growing since 1982 and is at this point now nearly 14 feet long. Growing since 1982, 14 feet long. 
That's what exciting. nationality is that man? Oh, he's got to be Indian. Ding, 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 ding. Well done. Why does he got to be Indian? Because Indians are famous championship facial hair growers for length. I mean, well, those Ed, dudes, they you want a good beard, you want a good mustache. The Indians, they they go hard. They are okay. hard in the paint, JD. Those a lot of people th- go to Germany and they think, oh, well, the Germans. No. The Germans, they they like, you know, do use a lot of hairspray and, you know, wrap wrap their mustaches around beer cans and stuff to spray them into weird shapes. That's all sissy girly man stuff. You if you want a proper no holds barred terminal length facial hair champion you go to india okay well i will tell you uh that ram singh shahan indeed holds the world record for the longest mustache which is 14 nearly 14 feet long been growing since 1982 the reason he started growing a mustache ed is because a friend with a seven foot long mustache suggested it to him well (laughs) you know you it's funny um we are we are a mimetic people jd we are man is a mimetic animal i I, all my brothers made fun of me when I when I showed up with this mustache, but at least two of them are now currently. I can, I, I see them sort of you know desperately screaming at their purple. I wonder if I could. Get, it wouldn't surprise me by the end of the week if there are some if there are some pale imitations on offer. Okay, Ed. In 1971, this professional baseball team, you should get this one right, was paid three hundred dollars each to grow their mustaches. Um, with with an incentive like that, no one on the team rejected the offer became a media frenzy when the team went up against the clean-shaven Cincinnati Reds in the 1972 World Series, and the media called the match up the hairs versus the squares. Ed, what was that baseball team? Oakland. Oakland A's. Well done. Yeah, it would be. I think you need money ball. What do you need money ball for when you can just have mustache ball? Absolutely. The A's the won ba- that world. Look, every, every great baseball pitcher has had a mustache. Like Randy Johnson's handlebar, people were scared to death of that man. And yeah, reasonably so. Raleigh fingers, mustaches, and, and baseball prowess go hand in hand. This is known. In the history of the White House, only four U.S. presidents have worn a mustache. Name them. Um, are we including sort of, you know, sideburny civil warrior stuff? Mustache only. Like mustache guys who only. just had a mustache. I feel like Chester Arthur had a mustache. Nailed it. Teddy Roosevelt had a mustache. Nailed it. Uh, did Grant have a mustache? Uh, Grant had a beard. Grant had a beard. Okay. Um, but if Teddy uh, Roosevelt had it, who there's a gimme because who tried? Who desperately wanted to be Teddy? Taft. Roosevelt? Taft had a big Taft. walrus mustache. Taft had a big walrus mustache. And then Am I three one, or four now. Who who did you name? I, I've got Taft, Roosevelt, and Arthur. Okay, this guy uh, served um, two terms non consecutively, and was the first. Democrat elected after the Civil War. But more importantly, he served two terms non-consecutively. Despite his name, he was not from Ohio. He was actually from New Jersey, my home state. Despite his uh, name. Grover he, Cleveland. Grover, Grover Cleveland. Cleveland. Well done. Good job. Yes, indeed. The four presidents to wear a mustache were Chester Arthur, Theodore Roosevelt, Grover Cleveland, and William Howard Taft. It's, it's actually a fairly representative sampling of the presidency. Yeah, okay. You've got you've got some incompetence in there. You've got some some greatness in there, um, and you got some mediocrity. Okay. Uh, would you like Would you like one more? One more, please. Okay. How many hairs does the average mustache have? Oh, I don't know, but our Lord and our Lord and Father in heaven has counted every one. <laughs> and what number does he arrive at? I'm going to go with. 
8,000. Oh, wow. And there are between 10,000 and 20,000 hairs on a man's face, but the average mustache has only 600. 600? It's a very small piece of real estate we're talking about. Not in your well, case. That handlebar, that handlebar is rocking a lot, but the average mustache is not a handlebar like yours. Yeah, I mean, sure, if you're growing a Charlie Chaplin, you know. <laughs> you got to figure for everybody who's rocking the sort of true detective thing you're rocking, you, you do. You, you know Rusty and True Detective? I do, yes. That's what Ed looks like right now. Um, well, that's also kind of, you know, it's not a million miles from from the sort of milieu in which I find myself. All right. All right. I'm, all in, right. I'm, in, I'm in the rural parts of this country that are the best. Okay. I'm going to have one more question for you. Okay. What have you been doing with your family up there? You guys, you guys playing games a lot? You guys playing cards? Um, there have been some card games. I, I stayed up late one night earlier this week and played poker till two and a half, three in the morning. Um, with a couple of cousins and my brother. Okay. And, um, uh, do you have, uh, you have any good hands? I had several good hands. I, I, I had a couple that were brilliantly played and came off brilliantly. I had a couple where I lucked out and made it away. Um, but I, I busted out on, on a bad beat. I mean, I had the cards, I read the cards, I made my bets perfectly. And the person I was betting against my brother, um, he cut, he caught the only card that could have saved him on the, on the river. What was um, it? So, uh, he got a ten. Oh, do you have any kings in your hand in that hand in that hand? No, I I I had I I was dealt an offsuit five four. I flopped a pair of fours. I got the five on the turn, so I was sitting on two pair and went all in. And and my brother got was sitting on an ace, a pair of aces from the flop. And so I had him beat cold. And there was but he he was holding a ten as his other card, and he got a ten on the river and uh, cleaned me out. Because Ed, three of the four kings in a deck of cards sports a mustache. Oh, which king does not? Uh, king of hearts has got a chin strap. <laughs> hey, this man knows the king of hearts. Well done, Ed. You are not only you are not only wearing that mustache very well, but you are the king of mustache trivia. You guys may not know this about Ed, but when he says he's going on vacation, he's just reading up on crap about mustaches, and we're all very proud of you, Ed. That's important stuff to keep keeping your brain there. Well done. Well, thank you. I, okay, I want to I want to give satisfaction. Listen, if you want to know about things that are much more important than mustaches, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School. To find out if Seton is right for you and your family, check it out at setonhome.org. And they may have some lessons about mustaches. I really don't know. But the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn, joined by my mustachioed podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And we will be back. Um, will we be back next week? You keep talking about this so-called vacation. Are we making a show? Yeah, we're making. That's why I'm going on vacation right now. Is because oh, I've got to be so back next, next, next Friday. Week. We will be back next week to make a great show. Adios, everybody. Bye.